Acts 15. Today's, uh, oh, here's a word of the day, pericope. Uh, pericope means a unit of literature that stands in its own merit. It's almost always used in terms of Bible. It's almost an exclusively Bible word, but it can mean other things. So pericope, like in the book of Proverbs, is or might be only half of a verse. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a portion of literature that stands in its own merit, kind of like the word paragraph. Pericope is like paragraph. But the pericope in this case is the whole story of Acts chapter 15. So we're going to look at um, today's pericope is uh, 15, 1 through 21. And uh, the thought that we're going to examine today is um, what bearing does the Old Testament law have on the Christian? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. There's uh, 613 different rules. I read them this week. Almost didn't even want to keep reading the list. I mean, because there's just so many. They were all codified for me, and so I was reading, 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 reading. Wow, a lot of rules in the Old Testament. We're probably all breaking one of them right now. Brother Cook, I think you're breaking one right now. You're not allowed to mix fabric, cotton and rayon or cotton and wool. You can't have the same garment with two different kinds of fabric in it. I mean, it's really specific stuff that, uh, you know, the Lord handed down through Moses, in most cases, sometimes through the prophets. But the Old Testament law, there's a ton of rules, 613 specific, unique rules. So let's uh, start in with our text, and I'm going to read a few verses here and a few verses there. First, I'm going to read Acts 15. I'm in the NIV today. I just grabbed that Bible, so if if you have a button that you can push for NIV, I'm going to read the first five verses of Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers this when they came down. Unless you're circumcised, I hate it when it goes PG-13, but I have to stop here. Does everybody know what circumcised means? always a sticky wicket to have to explain that one. Okay, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers real glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done to them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. This introduces the thought today, doesn't it? I mean, so here's what's happening in the early weeks and months of the churches, they were just figuring stuff out and trying to lay the foundations upon which all of the future of the church would be uh, rested on. The harebrained idea came to some of them. By the way, remember that the church started among the Jews. They were stunned when the Samaritans, pause, Samaritans are half Jewish and half not Jewish. They were stunned uh, they were mixed breed. Remember, share, half breed. How oh, I love to hate the word. They were that, but only it was instead of Indian, it was uh, Jewish. And so, okay, half breed. Okay. 
So the Jews didn't like them because the Jews believed in real clean, in fact, that's some of the rules. Remember I said 613 rules? One of the rules, at least one, is thou shalt not marry a Gentile. Okay? So uh, they were real sticklers about that. So that when the gospel went out and people from Samaria, half-breeds, got saved, responded to Philip's message of evangelism, the Jews in Jerusalem freaked out and said, it cannot be. How could it be that unless you're totally Jewish, because in their mindset, they had it that um, God's favorite people was always the Jews, and now God's going to change the channel and make it be a Jesus thing instead of a temple thing, okay? But it's still clearly going to be just for the Jews. But they freaked out because the Samaritans were saved. And then Peter went and preached to the semi-Italians, totally Gentile, totally non-Jewish, Acts chapter 10, and they got saved. So the Jewish boss people in Jerusalem were still scratching their heads in amazement that non-Jews could even be saved. So it was not too illogical for them to be left with a sense that, okay, time out, maybe they can be saved through Jesus. Okay, clearly that's a possibility. But by gum, they're going to have to follow the rules that we have to follow. Garden, you think you're saved? A, this afternoon, we're going to have a circumcision party. And then we're going to teach you these 613 rules, and you've got to do every one of them. This tests a man's sincerity, amen? Because you've got to be pretty sincere to go through with that. And this was their mentality. Well, if you want to be a Christian, <laughs> prove it. And so that was their mentality. Uh, and again, Paul and Barnabas, as we read, read in our text, they're like, mm, mm, I don't think so. We're going to check with the people at headquarters and, and, and see uh, what that means. Let's look at verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Okay, it's a little small portion of scripture here. So uh, Paul and Barnabas go up, bring up the question, and there's a powwow, the big wheels. There's a uh, Senate vote. There's a, they gathered together all the church fathers, the smart people that really love Jesus, and they said, what about this question? So they gathered specifically to talk about that question. Look at verses 7 through 11. After much discussion about the subject, and when you know the subject that they're talking about, if you get saved and you were born a Gentile, you weren't a Jew, you were born a Gentile, and you get saved, do you have to travel through the gate and on the path of Judaism in order to be saved? Starting with circumcision and ending with those 613 rules. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you uh, that the Gentiles might, might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Pause. Real quick. So Peter is preaching to the Italians. The, uh, they really were Italians. You, 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 you scowl every time I say it, but they really were. At Cornelius' house, he was part of their Italian regiment. He was an Italian family. So uh, he's preaching to them, and there was some concern whether or not they really got saved. 
But one of the cool things is, do you remember the phenomenon that happened in Acts chapter 2? All the people were gathered together in the upper room and they were praying and Jesus said, don't leave until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. After that, you can leave Jerusalem, but don't leave until then. They're praying, they're praying, they're wondering what's it going to look like, what's it going to be like, the Holy Spirit, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came upon them and it was unlike anything that ever happened to them before. Sound as a mighty rushing wind. Looked like they each had a flame of fire over their heads. I mean, this was not normal stuff. This was paranormal. And they all began to speak out mighty deeds of God in languages that they had never studied and didn't learn. We call it speaking in tongues. Okay? We're not going to go too deep in that now, except to say that also was a phenomenon. When Peter went to Cornelius, the Italian guy's house, all Jews, let's say there were two dozen people there, we don't know exactly how many, he's a preaching to them. Oh, and then Jesus loves you, and he's preaching to them. And all at once, the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches in Acts chapter 10, fell upon the audience. Even before Peter gets a chance to finish his sermon, the Holy Spirit came in and fell upon them, and each one started proclaiming the mighty deeds of God in a language that they had never studied. In other words, the same phenomenon that happened to the Jews in the upper room now was happening to these Gentiles. Some, Peter fr some people from Jerusalem were there because you know, they didn't like what Peter was doing, preaching to Gentiles, because, again, they thought that was not the way God was going to operate. And uh, they were floored when it occurred to them that God was really going to redeem the Gentiles too. And it was proof positive that he was in the business of doing that when they heard the Gentiles speak in other tongues, just like the Jews had spoken in other tongues. It was like the, it was like the proof that it, it really was happening, because they were doing something that you just can't do on, on, on your own, not have it make sense. You, you can go ahead and lead out some gibberish, you know, but if it's going to make sense and be a real language, you, you can't do that too good. Verse 8, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. For he purified their hearts. Look at the words. He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter, of course, was the tip of the spear bringing the gospel message to the Gentiles, and he, he actually didn't want to do it. He felt like he shouldn't, but God had to show him in a special vision, and that's a whole other program. I won't use time talking about that. But he, he recounts the legitimacy of their conversion, uh, and he introduces uh, an integral element of salvation in verse 9. Verse 9. By faith. By faith. The Gentiles' hearts had already been claimed, uh, cleansed, and he's getting to this, that cleansing had nothing to do with the law. When those Gentiles got saved, it wasn't because they had followed the 613 rules of the law. It wasn't because they had uh, been circumcised. It's because they had faith, not submission to the law. Peter, turn up the heat one notch, verse 11. Uh, there are not two paths to God. There's only one, and it's not the law. Peter said we're all saved the same way, by receiving uh, the undeserved grace of Jesus.
Let's look at verse 5. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Jerusalem, uh, the, the uh, Gentiles through them. Paul and Barnabas are standing up and saying, Amen, Peter, it happened with us too. We saw God move through the Gentiles as well. See, again, these bosses that are holed up in Jerusalem hadn't been out in the field to see what was actually happening. So Peter stood up and said, Great things happened among the Jews on my watch. Paul and Barnabas stood up, verse 12, Great things, we agree, amen. Things We've been seeing great things among the Gentiles as well. Verses 13 through 19. When they finished, James spoke up. By the way, this we already had one James get killed in the uh, in the book of Acts, so this is clearly not that James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, when they finished, when Paul and Barnabas finished, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. He said, Simon, that's Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it's written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins will be rebuilt. I will restore it. The remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, they have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, and listen to this verse special to me, James talking. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God, for Gentiles who are turning to God. That's key. I want to read it again because it's going to be the one drum I want to beat hard this morning. We should stop making it difficult for Gentiles, for people who are turning to God. Now, as I said, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he explained it this way. What they had just heard through Peter and Paul, yeah, Peter, Paul, and, and, and Barnabas, uh, was nothing short of what the prophets looked forward to. In other words, this wasn't brand new news. This was news that was old as the prophets. The prophets looked forward to it. Right here, he's quoting Amos chapter 9. Uh, this is one of but many Old Testament references where God's clear that all nations, God wanted to be saved. And, and, and James' deduction in verse 19 is among my favorite uh, snippets in the whole Bible. Since we know that God has always intended Gentiles to be saved, and since we're seeing it happen, verse 19, we've got to quit making it hard for people coming to God. Stop, in today's language, stop hassling the Gentiles. Stop putting on stuff on them that you can't even do yourself. There wasn't a Jew present among the bosses or among the people that are in the synagogue or temple, among the priests or among the people that didn't even go to temple who are Jews, there wasn't a single one of them that didn't blow it every day, all the time, with those 613 rules. Those 613 rules, it's not really part of my message. I just want to tell you something about it. When God gave the law, we read over in, Galatians 3, when God gave the law, he intended it to be what he calls a schoolmaster or a tutor to prove to you that you cannot do it on your own. It is a holy law. It's a good law. But it's physically impossible for you to keep all 613 commandments. It's just physically impossible to do it. It never was intended to save people. It always was intended to show you a need for a savior. 
outside yourself. See, one of the most one of the most uh, insulting things to God would be to say, you know, God, I've got this one. I'm going to be good enough for you. God knows that you cannot be good enough. So the law is to help prove to you that God's, it's like God saying, okay, you're good enough? Here's the law. Here's what holiness actually is. When you're done with these 613 things, give me a call then. And when we set out to say, well, I can do it. There's only 613 of them. You can't do it. It's just too much. It never was intended to be able to be followed and get you in to heaven or whatever. It's there to prove that you need God. You need his help. So let's finish our text here. The last couple of verses, verses 20 and 21. Uh, and I just have a couple more things I want to say. Instead, we should write uh, to the, okay, so I want to put it in context. Start with 19. My judgment, stop making it hard for the Gentiles to turn to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. And I'm going to take these one at a time real quick. Do you even know what that means? I mean, what is food polluted by idols? You're going to like this one. So back in the day, there were two places, to, we'll say Walmart and Publix, to shop for meat. Okay? Now they ate meat just like we eat meat. Not quite as much as we eat, but they ate meat. So when you went to Walmart, the steak only cost two bucks a pound. And when you went to Publix, it was nine bucks a pound. You say, well, why is it so cheap at Walmart? I'll tell you why. Not just because it's healthy. Uh, I'll tell you why it's cheap at Walmart. I'm just trying to contemporize the example. They obviously didn't have Walmarts and Publix back then. Okay, So it was cheap at Walmarts back then because the, the meat that Walmart carried, they would go to the pagan temple. This is the way the pagan temple worked. You were pagan. You believed in the fake god Diana or whoever it was. And in order to feel good about yourself, you would carry in an animal and the priest of that temple would sacrifice that animal to the pagan god, an idol, you know, and uh, cut it all up, wouldn't burn it like the Jews did, would cut it all up. Here are the pork chops for, the, for Mark's sins, the pork chops, oh, idol Diana. And then they would put it over here, and at the end of the day, they would carry all the meat to Walmart. And Walmart would be like, okay, well, this is used meat and stuff, but it's still edible. How would you like to buy meat for two bucks a pound? This is meat that had been offered before idols. And so uh, you either go buy meat from Publix that had never been offered to idols, or you go to Walmarts and buy the meat that had been offered to idols. And it was really cheaper. That was the reason people would buy that meat, because it was two bucks instead of nine bucks. So people like on a tight budget, and they'd go buy the cheap meat, and they'd be like, well, who cares? Offer to idols. Okay, that's what that means. Instead, we should write to the Gentiles, tell them, don't be buying their meat at Walmart. No, I'm kidding. Don't be buying food polluted by idols. That's the first thing. Stop with the crazy sex lives that some of them were having. This stuff we see around today is not brand new. And again, I'm sorry that we're PG-13 on this message, but that's the way it is, just reading the Bible here. Uh, stop all your crazy sexuality and stop eating 
blood. See the last two things there. See the meat of strangled animals and from blood. I don't want to go off on a deep end here, but I just want you to know God was very clear to the priests when, when, when they killed their animals, they were supposed to kill them in such a way that the blood left the body. And when they had a piece of meat, it didn't just like ooze with blood. The life is in the blood the Old Testament God teaches. And so God has a thing about eating blood. And sometimes, and this is disgusting, uh, people would drink the blood. Or if you're like my brother Stephen, do you know that there's something called blood sausage? It's the nastiest invention in the world. They take this casing that you normally put real good Italian sausage for spaghetti, and instead of packing that meat in there, they tie one end, and they fill it full of blood and let it coagulate and harden, and they tie the other end, and then they eat it. Nasty. Tell my brother that's against the Bible when you eat that stuff. It's disgusting. Uh, and so uh, these three things, stop buying food that's been openly offered to idols. Stop with your sexual craziness and stop eating bloody stuff. So James says, for the sake of harmony among the brethren, please do these things. His rationale, this wasn't really the law. His rationale was every church day and week we've been telling people this. It will totally stir their brains if you start eating idle blood, I mean eating, yeah, idle blood too, idle meat and continuing to live in your craziness, sexual craziness and all that stuff. So he said, those three things, please stop doing those three things. But after that, uh, you know, he didn't have much to say. Now, this is much more than a historic account of some people in church. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and particularly James were clarifying uh, a huge doctrine. Here's the doctrine. Salvation comes not by behavior. This is the drum I'm beating. We're back to the drum I'm beating this morning. Salvation from God does not come by behavior. Doesn't come to you by good behavior. Doesn't leave you by bad behavior. By the way, this is a mature message. There's a lot of, and I'm not bragging on you, and I'm not bragging on me, and I'm not bragging on Little Clear Springs Church, but I'm just telling you right now because I know. There's a lot of churches that aren't prepared to hear this message that our salvation does not hinge on our behavior. But it doesn't. You don't get thrown out the minute you do something wrong, and you don't get accepted the minute you do something right. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what Jesus did and whether you attach yourself to that by faith. That's it. Those are the guardrails right there. Anything you add into that is an insult, as I said earlier, to God. Salvation does not come by behavior. It only comes by faith. Uh, Grace on God's part, faith on our part, and that's it. Uh, you complicate the, for, the formula at your own peril. I'm reminded of, I told the guys in Sunday school this a few weeks ago. You know, we were talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. They come rapping at your door. And I said, uh, don't forget Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11, because it's a great verse to, to talk to the um, Jehovah's Witnesses about, because they believe that there's a bunch of gods, and Jesus is a god, and there's other gods besides Jesus. And, oh, it gets complicated. But Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 is a cool verse because it is what they named themselves after. They found their names, Jehovah's Witnesses, in that verse. It says, uh, uh, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I alone am Jehovah. I alone save you and not some foreign God, not some created God. So when you accidentally 
come to believe, the devil will help you believe this, when you accidentally come to believe that your good behavior is preserving, or worse, causing your salvation, it's a slap in the face to God. He said, I alone am God, I'm Jehovah. I alone save and not some foreign God among you. When you think, oh, I've been good enough, I've followed the rules, and that's why I'm in, you've just offended God. And you know who the other little God is? It's you. You've saved yourself. And God said in Isaiah 43 and verse 11, I alone save you, not some other foreign God. You complicate the formula of grace on God's part, faith on your part, and that's where it stops. Paul wrote it succinctly in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It's by God's grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of anything that you do or don't you. Notice, and get this, nothing about wearing a tie to church. See, the church has been famous the last uh, 200, maybe more years, making up their own 613 rules. Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James made it clear, squint with the rules. They don't have to follow the rules. And then there was this little point at which everybody was, you know, kumbaya and, and trusting God and not living by the rules. And all of a sudden the church got rolling and the first thing the church did was started making up more rules. You know the rules. Oh, we're tied at church. Don't forget Sunday night service. I don't know if you'll go to heaven if you don't go to church on Sunday nights. And, and how many chapters in the Bible did you read? I went and visited several times Roach Baptist Church in Chapmanville, uh, West Virginia. And it's by Roach River. That's why they call it Roach Baptist Church. And uh, at, at the beginning of church, everybody said, oh, I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, everybody says, uh, uh, the guy up front says, chapters 14, 6, 23, 2. And they were saying how many chapters of the Bible they read that week. Now, I'm all about reading the Bible. But I don't think it's something you need to be bragging about or embarrassed about. I just believe you ought to read the Bible. Um, so it doesn't occur to me that we have to give an accounting to one another. Uh, but what the church did was it quickly made a whole batch of other rules. Yeah, you need to wear a suit to church. Don't forget Sunday night services. Uh, I'm going to wander here into something that may insult you one way or the other. Uh, we better not see a mug of beer in your refrigerator. We better not see a, a uniquely shaped patch of something in your shirt pocket or up on your sleeve here or a round thing back here. Better not see that or we'll know you're not safe. When we see that image, when I see a little round can back there, huh, betcha he wishes he was saved like me. Don't think it doesn't happen. It's the mentality of the church today. God is offended by people who think that they can behave themselves into or by judges like people like me, if I'm not careful, that thinks that we can judge them out of the kingdom of God based on whether they chew or dip or, or sip or, or whatever. We've made our own 613 stinking rules and have offended God uh, in the process. I'm afraid that uh, in many ways the church hasn't changed a wink since those Pharisaic believers raised their voices and for them it was, you better be circumcised. You better follow our 613 rules or else you're not serious about it. We don't say that anymore, but we, say, we fill in the blanks with our own stuff. Uh, uh, denomination by denomination. But each denomination 
uh, has their little 613 things. If James showed up to many of our churches today, he'd scoldingly ask us the same question. Why are you making it hard for people to come to God? Why are you doing that? This is God's business. It's not your business. You're not the referees with yellow flags in your pockets. You don't get to run around and, and, and throw down foul flags. You just tell people Jesus loves them and, and, and try to convince them that he's worth trusting, that he paid the price for their sins, and if they would just trust them, God will take care of them. You feel like you've got to make them uh, uh, learn this big, long list of, uh, of do's and don'ts. James would say, why are you making it hard for people who are turning to God? Why are you making it hard on them? What, why, what are you doing? Are you trying to strain them out? Or are you trying to, another reason there's 613 rules today for us? Can I just tell you why this rule? There's two reasons, two primary reasons why the church has made up these rules. Accidentally made them up. We know better, would get it right on a test, but we accidentally do it anyway. Two reasons. One, this is embarrassing. Because we want to test and see if people are serious about it. If you're serious about it, you'll quit going to movies. Hey, when I first joined a church, an assembly to God church, and I'm not dissing the assembly because I'm telling you, it's the same, it doesn't matter what church you go to, this craziness goes on in all of these. I became a member. I had to sign this card. I will not dance. I will not go to the theater. I'm talking about the theater where your neighbor across the street is a play actor in the theater, that kind of theater where they shout and jump right in front of you. I will not go to the movie house. I will not play with playing cards. When my grandparents joined the church, the list included I will not go to a ball game. You might remember some of that. Yeah. Yeah. When I was a kid, I could not ride my bicycle on Sunday. Now, I'm not going to say that none of these are good ideas or bad ideas. I'm just saying that when we drag it in and we make it on par, we somehow say we add it to God's grace and our faith, and we make this matrix of, of considerations for our salvation that God can satisfy it. We've got to be careful. And James would say, why are you making it hard? So, so one reason we do it uh, might be to test their resolve. The other reason people do it, and this is even a little more embarrassing than just to test their resolve, see if they're serious. If you're serious, you won't go to the movies anymore. Well, I want to go see Denzel Williams, uh, Denzel Washington, Washington in Hawaii. That looks like a pretty cool movie. You know, it hits me on all my cylinders. I just want to see it. It looks like he turns it upside down. I don't know. It's kind of cool to me. I'll probably go see it. And I'll still go to heaven. My grandma taught me, you know, if Jesus comes back and you're in the movies, he's not there. She was serious. She did not want me in the movie house. I'm glad she loved me and cared about me once I had a Catholic girlfriend. Oh, poor, my poor grandma. I thought she was going to have a coronary. I'm not getting married to this girl, grandma. She's just my girlfriend. Well, she's Catholic, so you better be careful. Oh, man. Uh, the other big reason, not only to test their resolve, but the other big reason that's kind of a little more thick is because whenever we have rules, you, you understand this part of what I'm teaching this morning. Whenever we have rules and we master the rules, it makes us feel good. I, I don't play cards. 
I don't go to the movies. And I all of a sudden feel like I deserve this more because I'm an active participant in what's happening. You know what, Mark? If, if I said to you, oh, Mark, before you leave today, there's something I got I want to give to you. And I give you some cool gadget, maybe worth 30 bucks. I saw it, I thought about you, and I gave it. Okay, and I don't mean to pick on you with this, but you'd go home and say, Steve Carroll, look, give me this thing. We got to do something for him. I got to get him something. That's just the way we're wired. We're wired to be like, I don't want to be in debt to you, man. You just gave me something. That's cool. I had a hard time accepting it, but okay. It's cool, but I, be, before this week is over, I'm going to settle the score. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something good for you. Because, you know, and we have this same mentality with God. God, okay, if you're going to save me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to earn that thing. I'm going to be a good doobie, and you're going to be proud of me, and I'm, it's, it, it's going to be a tit for a tat. And God's like, please don't insult me. I'm just giving you this thing. I sent my son to die for you. Please don't think that you pulled this off because you really didn't pull this off. This was a big gift from him. Please just accept the gift. And don't try to better me. Don't try to prove it to me. Don't try to act so good that you feel like you finally deserve it because you don't. It was a gift from me that cost me a lot of money. So please just receive the gift and, and, and quit uh, trying to earn it. Does the Christian... Uh, then the question that's begged, and I'm winding down, is Christian then just go ahead and behave just the same as he did before he got saved, since there's no rules? Woohoo! <laughs> I guess that depends how crazy you were before you got saved. They did lay down a couple of ground rules for the people that were getting saved, the Gentiles. They didn't just say, let it rip. You know, you that is, uh, yeah, I don't want to go because it's PG-13. I was thinking that middle one with the immorality. He said, you know, get a, get a grip on that. Don't be doing that anymore. So there were a couple of common sense things. So probably not. No, we don't do everything just like we used to do. But any new good behavior or any stop bad behavior has nothing to do with your salvation. That's the drum again that I'm beating. You hear me beat it? Your good behavior and your stopping your bad behavior has nothing to do with your being saved, period. Look, you're saved because God loved you and Jesus died for you and you attached yourself to that. That's it. Trust me when I tell you that it's a demonic trick to get you thinking for yourself or for somebody else that you have to be good enough for God to love you. You hear me call it a demonic trick? When he can plant a seed in your mind and say, unless you're good enough, you're not good enough. As a kid, I prayed the sinner's prayer. By kid, I mean from 5 to 25. I still do it once in a while. I hate admitting it. Prayed that sinner's prayer. I'd be at the top of a steep ski slope, and I'm a crazy, fancy skier. I just My attempt was, how fast can I go? And I could go pretty fast. I'd get extra long skis and go little, probably 50 miles an hour, maybe more. And uh, But I'd stand at the top of that, look at the lodge down between the tips of my skis, and I'd say, okay, dear Jesus, if I die, I love you. Please forgive my sins. Watch me go. You know? And I'd go. And I believe that because maybe what if I said a bad word since the last time I stood at the top of that? Or what if I looked at a girl funny? Or what if I ate too many Twinkies or some glut? I was just taught that unless you behave perfectly, God's love 
was taken off of you. But then when you prayed, Jesus, forgive me, it was coming back to you. And then when you misbehaved again and you, and you went 56 miles an hour on the highway, oh, God's love went away from you. And then when you said, oh, God, forgive me, it came back to you. And then when you rolled through a stop sign, God's love went away from you. Hey, no. God just watches and relax in that. It's a demonic trick to put you on that yo-yo and to think that you're good enough. Can I just tell you? The, whoever's best in here, let's just say it's Sam. I think it might be right. Whoever's best in here, I just made you the most godly guy, person in the group, okay? Enjoy the status. But you're still not good enough. The Bible teaches all your righteousness is as filthy rags. Even if you're perfect, it's as filthy rags. And the Bible teaches there's none righteous, no, not one. So quit letting the devil whisper in your ear, you know, you're really not good enough for God. You just don't, I know. Isn't grace wonderful that Jesus loves me? When you have kids, you'll figure this out. When you have kids, so I've got this one kid that tries our patience. We've got four, and I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Some of you know, but some of you don't. It doesn't matter. I've got one kid that's trying our patience. And I've got the other kids looking in on that situation, and they're judging their brother. Oh, how did blah, blah, blah. You should ostracize him, blah, blah, blah. You know? I, you can't say to your child, I don't love you anymore. You can't do it. You're like, you hurt me badly. You took my heart out of my chest and stomped on it. You did me dirty. Probably wrong for me to tell you an example of what I'm talking about. He hurt me. On, instead of loving me on Father's Day, he wrote me this note and said, Happy freaking Father's Day, Dad. I'm like, I got a couple other things on my plate this year. The last thing I need is a son to be wishing me a happy freaking Father's Day. You know, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'll just call him Andrew. I don't have a kid named Andrew. And it is really immaterial which one it is. I love Andrew. Well, it's not, it doesn't matter. I love that son. It seems like more than the other sons because my heart is tore up about it. And, and that son's brothers and sister. I'm like, Dad, write him out of the will. Tell him to get lost. He's a jerk. Blah, blah, blah. I know that. I know his misbehaving. But it doesn't change your father's love. His mom, my wife, and I weep for him in ways that we don't, we just don't even weep for the other kids. You know, we love, it's great when it goes good. I don't, I don't want for you to ever have to experience that. But I'm just telling you that you don't, Stop loving someone. The context I brought it up in, behavior doesn't make God stop loving you. Just like I love that son. Happy freaking Father's Day. God loves me even when I act stupid and show my butt. And, and, and uh, you know, he looks at me and probably, but he loves me so much. And when you can find the place up here first and then it kind of drools down and gets in your heart, when you find that place, it's a wonderful place to be, to know that being loved by God is not hinged on your behavior. It's hinged on what he did uh, for us. Trust me when I tell you it's a demonic trick. Paul said uh, what most non-farming Christians. So some of you are farmers. My father-in-law will hear he's a farmer. And uh, for, for us 
Christians that are non-farmers, we, we call something a swear word. It, it, it's <laughs> you see that go right off the map, Dave? So, if you're a farmer, I mean, it's just what sticks to your boots and you talk about it. I mean, you don't mix words up, right? So, Paul used that word. Did you know that? Over there in Ephesians, I want to say, oh, Philippians chapter 3, the Greek word is skubalung. And he, this is the context he uses. He says, I'm awesome. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a big wheel Pharisee, schooled in the best school. Unto the law, I didn't commit any sins. I was incredible. And he lists all his, you know, everything that he's cool. Read it, Philippians chapter 3. And then he says down there, and I count every bit of that as scubalon. In other words, it's rubbish. Most of your nice translations call it rubbish. Some may call it dung, uh, trash. But that's not the word. The word is what I told you the word is. He said, I call it, I, I call it that. He got all his A-plus behavior, all his pedigrees, and he counts it as trash. Uh, he went on to say that uh, he couldn't care less about a righteousness that comes from obeying the law. Righteousness is only given by God. Yeah, I got more to say, but I'm just saying the same thing over again. I think you get the picture. Do not, do not, do not let the church or the devil. It's very seldom that the church and the devil sing the same song. But this is a case where the church and the devil sings the same song. Don't let either of them tell you that unless you behave this way, God doesn't love you. You tell them, Pastor Cliff said that's a lie, that God loves me no matter what. And I assure you that it's true. God loves you. Don't let the devil take that away from you. Certainly don't let a church take that away from you. God loves you. All he wants you to do, there's one standard. All he wants you to do is agree with him that you can't fix this yourself. The only way to be fi have it fixed is what Jesus did. That's it. Don't create a new way, including try to be good enough. Don't try to be good enough because that's a new way. God's insulted when you do that. Just go God's way and say, Lord, I agree with you that I'm a mess. I agree with you that you love me. And I allow Jesus what he did to clean me up so that we can have a relationship. Don't complicate it. That's it. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, help us. Forgive us for making things complicated, especially to the degree it might have made it hard for other people trying to find you to find you. And I pray for each of our hearts. The devil doesn't want us to have a good relationship with you, so he, uh, he messes with us. Help us to, now that we know better, we've had this lesson now, Lord. Help us to take his teeth out so his bite, that bite doesn't hurt anymore um, because uh, we know the truth about this matter now. Thank you for loving me no matter what. When I goof up, Lord, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident, sometimes without even knowing, I thank you, God, that your love for me is not affected at all. I depend on you. I love you. And uh, I pray that same experience for each person in this room. And we ask it in Jesus' name.